Now this is kicking off a new section of John's epistle, uh, and I'll dive into that more as we get going, but um, it's taking over a new topic. The first section that he dealt with is that how God is light, and now he's going to deal with the reality of how God is love, um, and this kicks it off. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Now, this is fascinating because, again, Cain and Abel were the firstborn of Adam and Eve, right? And I'm going to touch on the promise that God made in Genesis 3.15 that there are only two seeds. There's the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And here we see the two seeds. Cain is of the seed of the serpent. And... He killed his brother Abel, who was of the seed of the woman. So just side note, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. (laughs) We know that we have passed out of death into life. We have passed out of death, the family of the devil, into life, the family of God, because we love the brothers. Whoever does not abide, whoever does not love abides in death the family of the devil. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Let's pray. Father. Again, uh, this morning we need your spirit to open our eyes, to unclog our ears, and to soften our hearts. We need him to show us the glory, the beauty, and the heart of this passage. So I pray now that you would grant word and power to the one teaching, and that you would anoint me with your spirit, uh, strengthen me, and... Um, enable me to get through this. And we ask that you'd be pleased to do this for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I mentioned the promise of Genesis 3.15. We can't understand our passage until we establish this. This is the first announcement of the gospel where God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring or seed and her offspring. And then he, singular, 
Somebody from the line of the woman is going to be the one who crushes the head of the serpent. But from this, what do we see? There are only two seeds in the world. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. There are only two families in the world. Children of God or children of the devil. That's it. Those are our only two options. There are only two types of people, those who are saved and those who are not. There are children of light and children of darkness. There are those who practice righteousness and those who do not. Since the original fall in Genesis 3, all of us have been naturally born as children of the devil. All of us have a sinful nature that is opposed to God. All of us have been born in what the Bible calls sin. We're in it. We're under its influence. We're under its power. And as Paul says, we're dead in our trespasses and sins, which means we have absolutely no spiritual life at all. We're dead. Our nature, as Luther would say, is curved inward. It is bent inward. It is curved in on itself. Which means every human being who is born into this world is born obsessed with self. Is born consumed with self. Just look, at if babies weren't so cute, right, we would see how evil they really are. Right? I mean, holy cow, is there anything more selfish than a newborn baby that will cry until it gets what it wants because its nature is bent on self? We're self-centered. Our nature has a ruling desire to satisfy and exalt itself above all things. Above all people, even God. So our nature is born anti-God. We're against God. We're not for God. We're pro-self, anti-God. We're not born with a nature that seeks to exalt and please God. So naturally, we walk in darkness. Naturally, we abide in unrighteousness. Naturally, we love ourselves and hate our neighbor which raises a question if we're all born children of the devil then how does somebody become a child of God well according to John the phrase he uses is born of God literally birthed by God or born from above or in John 3 in his conversation with Nicodemus he says born again God must do a supernatural work to raise those who are dead in their trespasses and sins to newness of life. And how does he do so? He sends his spirit who regenerates, who recreates us, who restores God's image in us. And then when we're regenerated, we're raised to newness of life, God adopts us into his family. 
And you had as much control over your spiritual birth as you did over your natural birth. None whatsoever. It's all of God's grace. All of God's grace. And then once we are adopted into God's family, we now bear the family resemblance. We now reflect him. We now display him to others which I think Jesus shows us what that means. In Philippians 2, Paul is talking about how Jesus perfectly displays and reflects the character and the nature of who God is. In verses 5 to 8, Paul says, although he was the very character and nature of God, Jesus did not count equality with God as something to hold on to and keep for himself. No. Jesus did not hold on to his greatness and glory as God. He let it go. And emptied himself. And took on the very character and nature of a slave. He humbled himself, Paul says, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is who God is. As God, Jesus does not hold on to his greatness for himself. He lets it go. For the good of others. He willingly lets Go of his greatness as God for our good to serve us by loyally and sacrificially loving us. Jesus does not selfishly live for himself and his own glory, but he considers others as more important than himself. This is the very image of God. This is why God made us in his image so that we would reflect and display him by loyally loving and sacrificially living for the good of others. This is what Jesus came to restore. A community of believers who would reflect and display this image which is the image of God to others. A community of people regenerated by the Spirit who now bear the family resemblance and live sacrificially loving and serving others for their good above themselves. Now, John is writing this letter so that we can distinguish between who the children of the devil are and who the children of God are. John is giving marks, tests, so that we can see who belongs to which family. But he's primarily writing this letter to assure believers that they're truly members of God's family. In John 5, 1 John 5, 13, he says, I write these things to you 
who believe in the name of the Son of God. Why? So that you may know. Not that you may wish. Not that you may hope. But that you may know. I want to assure you that you have eternal life. And in our text, the ultimate sign that we are children of God is the way we love one another. Our text, it's marking off a new section in John's epistle. The first section all the way up to this point, John has been showing us how God is light. And now for the remainder of the book, he's showing how God is love. So the exhortation of the first section, if God is light, walk in the light. And now in this section, if God is love, walk in love. And what's interesting is why would he start with God is light before God is love? I mean, I would reverse that, right? If I wanted to influence people and bring them in, I would start off not with God's holiness. I would start with God's love. But John starts with God's light. He starts with God's holiness. Why? To prepare us. For the love of God. Knowing that God is light makes it abundantly clear that we need a God who is love. God's light or holiness, in other words, it reveals to us our need for his grace and for his mercy. Because so far, hasn't this letter been kind of, or not kind of, but pretty convicting to you? (laughs) Um, because so far, hasn't it made you wonder, am I truly saved? Um, Am I really walking in the light the way he's describing what that looks like? Because what's the light been doing? It's been exposing the darkness. It's been exposing the darkness of your heart. So walking in the light, it's not first about us walking in strength and victory over sin every day. No, it's first about seeing our need for God's grace to rid us of the darkness that is in our hearts, that remains in our hearts and expresses itself in the way we live. So when God's light exposes our darkness, in other words, it prepares us. To see God's love. Now last week we saw how it is only the love. It is only the grace of God. That's caused us to be born again. And adopted into his family. So now if God is our father. Look at verse 14. The way we know that we have passed. Out of death. Out of the family of the devil. And into life. The family of God. Is how? Because we love one another. Now, I want you to notice that the Bible calls us to love our neighbor, right? That which is everybody that you come in contact with. But here, the call and the concern is for brothers, for fellow Christians, for brothers and sisters in Christ. So John's concern here is the way that we love people in the church. (laughs) Oh, and let's be honest, 
Sometimes it is harder to love people in the church, right? Especially Christians from different denominations. Especially Christians who have different theological views and leanings. Especially Christians who have different worship styles, who have different emphasis, who are quite honestly difficult people. See, when Christians look at us, sorry, not Christians, when other people, let's say outsiders, look at us, when they look at the church, would they be assured that these people are truly Members of God's family because of the way they love one another. Or would they see hate, division, strife, enmity, and conclude, nah, they must be members of Satan's family. Do we really love each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, or do we view and treat each other as enemies? See, John only gives us two options. We are either loving each other or we're hating each other. (laughs) There's no squishy middle ground here. I wish there was, but there's not. So there is no, well, I sometimes love Christians. Uh, so because I do, I'm doing okay. No, you are either actively loving your fellow Christians or you are actively or passively hating them. What do I mean by that? Well, you're passively hating them when you're not mindful of them. When you're apathetic towards them. Or when you simply just don't care enough for them. If you are not actively loving other Christians, do you know why? It's because you're consumed with self. There's no other way to say it. Based on our nature, you're consumed with yourself. That's why you can't even think about other people, because all you can think about is yourself. See, think about it. You get irritated when other people, what? Interfere with your plans. (laughs) You view people negatively When they don't benefit you, when you get nothing from them, you look down upon them and dismiss them. Or, (laughs) man, how do you view and treat people when they get in the way of you getting what you want? Man, we do this with our spouses all the time. Don't we? 
See, verses 16 through 18, it lays out what it means to love one another. So look there. See, love, it's not a theological concept. It's not an idea. It is not mere words that we utter to people. And it's not simply a feeling that we have towards people. Love must be active. It must be tangible. It must be sacrificial. And it must be real and genuine. Verse 16, love is sacrificial. (laughs) Why? Because we see it in Jesus who laid down his life for us. Verse 17, love, it's using our gifting. It's using our resources to help other brothers and sisters in Christ who are in need. Verse 18, it's always following up our words with actions. With deeds of love. And here's the difficulty. This is not a one-time thing. This is an all-the-time thing. Why is it an all-the-time thing? This is not a call to love only when you feel like it. This is not a call to love only the people that you like or that are like you. Here's the way I would define it, according to Philippians 2, what we see in Jesus showing us the image of God. I also believe that's the definition of love. It's denying yourself. It's dying to yourself to live sacrificially for the good of others. Or as John says, or as Paul says, it's to lay down your life. For the good of others. Which means what? Love is always a sacrifice. Always. Love is always costly. Always. Why? Because it's dying to yourself. (laughs) It's dying to self in order to live for the good of others. But this kind of love, it is so unnatural to us. (laughs) It goes against everything our flesh desires. Why? Because this kind of call takes you outside of yourself. This kind of call takes you to consider others as more important than yourself. So if our sinful nature only thinks of itself... If our sinful nature dissolves to exalt and satisfy self above all things, if our nature is consumed and obsessed with self, then you know you're a part of God's family. That you have moved from death to life when you supernaturally love others sacrificially. Now, I want you to hear me. This kind of love does not gain you anything with God. In fact, this kind of love has little to do with you. (laughs) 
And this is why this kind of love is so difficult. This kind of love does not get you into God's family. It is the sign. It is the fruit that you are already in God's family. And this is where a lot of Christians get this wrong, okay? Because here's what we do. Uh, We immediately think, okay, I need to now go love like this. We jump from the fact that God is love, and now, oh, because God is love, now I need to display and reflect him in the way I love other people. When we do this, we miss a step. When we do this, we miss why we can love this way. When we do this, we miss the power that enables us to love this way. See, this is why we may feel convicted, right? I mean, we can read this and you're like, oh, man, I'm not doing so good at loving others. And then I get convicted, right? And I'm like, all right, I got to do better. But then you get so frustrated and then you beat yourself up when you don't. See, we say things like, you know, I'm going to work on this. What does that mean? Let's be honest. Or we buy how-to books, hey, to learn different love languages. I'm going to be honest, all you're really learning is how to better manipulate your spouse to get what you want. We try to be a better husband. We try to be a better dad. We get held accountable by our friends. We try to be a better friend. We try to be a better churchman. But we miss the necessary step to love sacrificially. You see, it's one thing to believe God is love. That's easy for us to believe. Of course God is love. It's all over the Bible. We sing about it in our hymns. We hear about it in our sermons. Believing that God is love is not the challenge for us. The difficulty is in believing God loves you. The main reason you and I struggle to love others is because we struggle to really believe that God personally, intimately loves me. See, God's love, when it's not real to your heart, causes you not to love others. Look at verse 20, because I want you to see what John's doing. You see what he's saying? Our hearts might wrongly condemn us. See, our heart, it looks at what we've done. It looks at all the ways we fail to love God and love others. And what does it do? It condemns you. You failed. 
worthless. God can't love somebody like you because, look, you can't even love. But I want you to notice something. When our heart condemns us, where does John point us? (laughs) He doesn't point us to our record of righteousness that week. (laughs) Oh, yeah, but hey, remember, I did all these things. Um, He doesn't tell us to remember, oh, but wait a minute, I love so-and-so, and... Also over here, I did this. He doesn't point us to ourselves. He points us away from ourselves. He points us outside of ourselves. He points us to God. Whenever our hearts condemn us, he says, God is greater than our hearts. So no matter what you feel, no matter what your record of love is, No matter what your heart is telling you, God's word is truer. God's word overcomes the accusations and condemnation of your heart. Now, many commentators have pointed out, which was, I think, you know, pretty cool, but because they didn't write with uh, numbers. (laughs) You know, it's a cool observation, but, you know, whether they had this in mind or not. Uh, there's a beautiful relationship between John's gospel, John 3, 16, and John's epistle, 1 John 3, 16. Because in John 3, 16, what is it? It's a demonstration of God's love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And then 1 John 3, 16 is the explanation of God's love. By this, by this, this is how we know something. By this, what? We know love. By what? That he laid down his life for us. This is how we know love. So these verses, what are they telling us? God's love for you, it's not a begrudgingly kind of love. God's love for you, it's not a dutiful, obligated kind of love. God's love for you, it's not a regretful Oh, wish I didn't, but I have to kind of love. No, God's love for you is passionate. It's intimate. It's eternal. It's limitless. It's, I like how one author described it, it's a one-way love that expects nothing in return because it has no exit strategy. Or, theologically, we would say it this way. It's a perfect covenantal love. It's a perfect covenantal love that led God to give up his own son for you. See, when you understand that, when that 
personally hits your heart. When you believe this more than you believe your heart. When you see how God loves you and the way he demonstrates that love for you. You will sacrificially and loyally love others. In other words, this is the power that enables you to love. This is the source. This is the root that produces the fruit of love in your life. Which means when you struggle to love others, you have functionally forgotten the love that God has for you. Right now. Or... Say it this way, the standard for our love for others is Christ's sacrifice. The motive of loving others is Christ's sacrifice. The power that enables us to love others is Christ's sacrifice. If you want to see love... Look at the cross. If you want to know love, look at the cross. If you want to show love, look at the cross. When you look at Jesus willingly taking your place, when you look at Jesus willingly sacrificing himself, to pay for your sin's penalty. What are you looking at? You're looking at God's look of love towards you. When you see Jesus being rejected and condemned by God on the cross. So that you would never be rejected. So that you would never be condemned by God. You will love others. See, the command to love others, it's not just rooted in who God is. It's rooted in who God is towards you. You will only be able to love others to the extent that you truly believe that God loves you. This is why our love for others is the ultimate sign that we belong to God's family. We don't work our way into God's family. We don't become family members by anything we do. We are loved into God's family. Now, when I was the campus minister at Baylor, uh, I had a student who was on suicide watch. I get this call at 11 o'clock at night saying, Pete, I need you to come over because I'm afraid of what I will do to myself if I'm alone. So I first told him, okay, before, call your parents and have them come up to be with you over the weekend. Uh, and I will be on my way um, but stay on the phone. This was my first cell phone. <laughs> it was a little flip phone. Right? So 
I'm talking to him the whole time until I get, got there. I rushed over to get there. And he starts telling me about how much he is struggling with God's love for him. And I said, why, basically? And the summary of it is that he struggled to believe that God could love him because he didn't love God very well. So he was basing God's love for him on his love or his failure to love. So the student would be doing well when he was, quote unquote, doing well. But when he struggled with sin and when he struggled with loving God, when he struggled with loving others, boom, he was full of fear. He was full of fear that God was going to punish him for his failures. He was full of fear because he thought God was disappointed in him. He was full of fear that God was angry with him, that God's love had diminished for him. Now, when this student's parents got there at 2 o'clock in the morning, I told him to read 1 John chapter 3 and 4. And while you're reading, here's the question I want you to ask. What is love? He calls me the next morning. He's all excited. He's like, all right, Pete, wait a minute. I had a thought that hit me last night, and I got, I got to know if this is right or not. Because this is out of left field. I have, I have no idea. My mind doesn't work this way. This is a concept I've never heard before. So I was like, okay, tell me what it is. He says, all right, you asked me to think about what is love. And I said, yeah. And he said, I realize Jesus loved God perfectly for me. And I said, you finally got it. And because Jesus loved God perfectly for you, Jesus is now God's expression of love for you. See, the point of our passage, it's not that we need to love others because God is love. No, it's live loved. Live in the reality of his love. Know that God loves you. How? Because Jesus laid down his life for you. See, when God's love personally hits your heart, you can't help but love others. See, what if PCPC... What if it becomes a church that is so caught up and captivated by the love of God in Christ that when other people visit, they don't say, man, they got awesome programs for all stages of life. Man, look at how many Bible studies they have. The Bible must be really important to them. 
Man, look at how orthodox they are in their theology. Or, wow, look at how involved they are in social justice. Or, man, look at how traditional and rich their music is. But rather they would come and say, these people must really know the love of God. Because how else can we explain the way they love one another? May God grant this. May God hit you so it changes you and enables you to love others loyally and sacrificially. Amen. Let me pray. Father, we... Golly. <laughs> uh, we, this is not natural. Love the way you define it. And specifically in this epistle, you tell us this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. Help us to see the reality of your love personally. Again, we can believe God is loved generally, but we need you to strike it home to our hearts. And we need your spirit to help us to believe your word more than our hearts. And then change us, transform us, more and more into the image of Jesus so that we would willingly sacrifice for the good of others. And we ask that you would do this for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.